This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash sports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 37. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Our guest this episode is one of the most well-known names in college basketball, and that's Coach Digger Phelps. And before we move to the Rich Spotlight, I just want to remind everybody that you can find all of the information about the podcast, all of the previous episodes on our website, richtakeonsports.com, and you can subscribe directly from there, and that way you'll make sure that you always receive the latest episodes. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, please do so at Rich Take Sports, and you can always send us emails directly, richmond at richtakeonsports.com. It's time now to move to the Rich Spotlight. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports. This is the Rich Spotlight. Our guest in episode 37 is Richard Phelps, but everyone knows him as Coach Digger Phelps. And he coached the University of Notre Dame men's basketball team from 1971 to 1991. And he was well known for having this unbelievable knack for beating number one ranked teams. And then he served as a college basketball analyst with ESPN for 20 years, retiring in 2014. But I can tell you, he's anything but retired. Just recently, Coach Phelps released his latest book entitled Father Ted Hesburgh, He Coached Me. And Father Hesburgh was the president of University of Notre Dame for 35 years. And Coach Phelps also just emceed a ceremony in September where a forever stamp honoring the late Father Hesburgh was unveiled. And we know that Father Hesburgh touched so many people's lives and obviously had a huge impact in Coach Phelps' life for him to write a book. And so one of the things that I talked with Coach Phelps about was can he share some stories and some insight of why Father Hesburgh was so influential and had such a huge impact and positive impact on so many people's lives? Uh, amazing on how influence he had on people's life. And he's speaking at a luncheon someplace, and this priest invited him to give a talk. And he's talking about how people have to give back to the have-nots so they can become haves. So after his speech, this, this woman comes up and says to him, Father, how do I get involved doing this? And he goes like A, B, C. So she leaves, and he says to the priest, who's that lady? And he said, oh, that's Joan Crock. Father Ted says, who's Joan Crock? You know, the Crocs, McDonald's. Well, he's never been to McDonald's in his life. He doesn't know a cheeseburger, or let alone a french fry. So he invites her out for a football weekend. They're all going around the campus, and he says, in this building we do South America, in this building we do Europe, in this building we do... She says, you don't have one building for everything? No. 
So she sends a check when she gets back for $10 million. Next thing you know, they have a groundbreaking ceremony. She's there for the ceremony, and they have a shovel, and they take the dig. After one year, Father Hesper goes into the development office and said, what's the interest on $10 million over one year? Back then, it was 10%. Good. Send a check of $1 million to Joan Crock because we have not put one brick in the ground in one year. So they write a check and send it to Joan Crock. So May 25th is his birthday. He's up at the Land of Lakes fishing one summer. All of a sudden, Joan Croc calls him up and says, did you get my birthday card? No, I'll get it back when I get to the campus, Joan, but thanks, I appreciate it. He gets back, opens up the birthday card, there's a check for $25 million. <laughs> well, they build a Hesburg Peace Institute, International Studies, and the Croc family and their foundation uh, funded it. Then when she passed a couple years ago, four or five years ago, another... Um, I want to say another $50 million was sent in by the Crack family to Notre Dame. But that's how he influenced, and she didn't go to Notre Dame. She just believed in Hesburgh and what he was and who he was. And so from that standpoint, he was 7-0 and on the bench as a game priest. What's that mean? You have Mass of the Day of the game, have a medal like St. Joseph the Carpenter to work hard. We'd never pray to win, and that priest would sit on the bench. He did it seven times in my 20 years and beat three number one teams. In 77, San Francisco comes in 29-0 and with Big Bill Cartwright, and we beat them at Notre Dame. Then in 78, Marquette was number one, we beat them. And in 79, 80, in 1980, we beat DePaul, who was number one, in double overtime. So I got my left arm around the shoulder, shaking his hand with my right hand, saying, Father, a lot of prayers for this one. He said, yeah, Digger, I was running out of Hail Marys. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the cover of the book for Father Teddy Coach Me. So, yeah, an interesting man and a big influence in my 46 years here at Notre Dame still to this day. Uh, I just uh, I'm like a disciple of Hesper. Without a doubt, obviously very impactful in many people's lives. And so now going back to your early part of your life before you actually got to meet him, how did sports become important in your life as a kid growing up? Well, growing up as kids, um, we just, uh, in Beacon, New York, a little town of 12,000 people. In our junior high school and high school, we're in the same building. So, like, in the seventh, eighth grade, we'd go up to the playground. Like, a football had practice on the big field, we'd be playing tackle football, you know, four on four on the lower field as kids. So, and then, of course, Little League Baseball, growing up in New York, you're either a Yankee, Dodger, Giant fan. I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan growing up, but played on the Yankees in the Little League team and wore number seven, which was Mickey Mantle's number. And then basketball, there was always a garage with a basket on it in my backyard and my neighbor, and we'd just play pickup games. So we'd, we'd always be involved in sports with kids, but... How I got the nickname Digger is interesting. In the eighth grade, I was bat boy for the varsity baseball team. We used to go up and down the Hudson River, Peekskill, Newburgh, Poughkeepsie. And while they'd be taking batting practice before the game, I'd sneak back on the bus and look in their lunch bags and eat their cupcakes and cookies. Well, on the way home, all of a sudden there's an issue because the guys are missing. Well, back then in the early 50s, there was a radio show where there was one segment, Digger Odell, the Friendly Undertaker. So my first name is Richard. My dad's first name is Richard. He was known as Dick Phelps. I was known as Richie. So on the way home, they're telling the coach what I did, and I'm yelling because they're beating me up on the back of the bus. 
And he says, Phelps, if you don't stop taking those cupcakes and cookies, we're going to put you in one of your old man's boxes. Do you understand that, Digger Odell? And 20 guys on a bus start laughing because they know what Digger Odell was. And my father was an undertaker. So the next day in practice, it wasn't Richie. It was Digger Odell get the bats, Digger Odell get the balls. So then the Digger dropped. But I should tell people, in college, when I used to bring roses to some girls that I liked, they never knew why they were getting roses until I brought them back to Beacon for a weekend. And they saw what my father was as an undertaker. So that was a little benefit on the side. Because at funerals are over, at the cemetery, you take roses to the hospital or to nursing homes where people are, you know, living and they're elderly, or I take them to sorority houses. So that, that was the side of it. But I went to college, went to Ryder uh, in Trent, New Jersey, played basketball, sat on the men's bench most of the time. But I was going there to get a business degree, which I did, to go in business with my dad. We bought another piece of property on there, Fishkill, where IBM ended up with some 50,000 employees in the 80s, 70s. Um, so that summer when I got out of college in 63, in between funerals, the high school coach there, a guy named Tom Winterbottom from Ohio, he wanted me to coach the Beacon High School team in the summer league because he wasn't allowed to coach under state rules. So that's how it all started for me, and getting hooked on basketball as a coach. But the next thing you know, I'm supposed to go to bombing school up at Simmons in Syracuse that fall, and I have a meeting with Mom and Dad, and I just say, do you think um, I can delay in bombing school and go back to Ryder and get a master's degree so I can teach and coach and try it out? And uh, I love my parents. They let me do it. So when I'm back at Ryder, and this is what I say to people who are young, have a dream, make it become a reality. So when I started to get into it in graduate school, I'm helping out like as a graduate assistant. So Little Rider College is going to play mighty NYU. As, as Madison Square Garden went, the old garden especially, that's how and everything went. St. John's, Fordham, Seton Hall, Manhattan, Columbia were schools that played basketball. But NYU ran the city. Lou Rossini was a great coach, and Barry Kramer was an All-American. Happy Harrison, who played with the Lakers, he was an All-American. And here we are, Little Ridey, Ryder College, you're going to play them, and I believe it was early March of 64. They had not lost a home game at University Heights since 1944. Yeah, they lost games in the Garden, but not at home. I scout them against Iona and Hosher, come back and tell the coaches, if I do ABC and offense, if we do ABC and offense, ABC and defense, we can beat these guys. And they say, good, you put in the game plan for practice. So for two days, I'm putting in the game plan with the guys I played with the year before. We go up to NYU, and we beat them. And I said, I can do this. So what happens? Well, I end up teaching and coaching at junior high school number four in Trenton the next, next year. So I'm writing college guys for jobs. I write Dean Smith in North Carolina, and he writes me back, and he hires some guy named Larry Brown. <laughs> Me, Larry Brown, who played for him and obviously won an NBA championship and an NCAA championship with Danny Manning of Kansas. So I end up at Little St. Gabriel's High School in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. And in 1965-66, that's when I'm there. In October of 65, I write Eric Parsegan a letter at Notre Dame. He's head football coach. Tell him I love Notre Dame, love the essence of Notre Dame. What he's doing in football, someday I want to do in basketball. Six years later, at the age of 29, I'm there. I make that dream become a reality. And what was interesting about all that, 
when I get that job in 71, I, I, here's what happened. I leave St. Gabe's and go to University of Pennsylvania and work for a guy named Dick Carter, who was a great coach and built, helped build Penn in the Ivy League, but more, more so a national power for four years. Then I go to Fordham in New York and take a team that's 10 and 15, take the same team, they're all back. And we end up going 26-3. and three. Why? I change the style of play. We end up starting four guards, a 6'5 center, and we go 94 feet and press everybody. Beat Dr. J. Julius Irving up at UMass. Beat Notre Dame and Austin Carr in the garden in front of 19,000. We lose to Al McGuire, and they were number two, Marquette, in the garden in front of 19,000. Lose to Villanova in the Eastern Regionals, who loses to UCLA in the national championship game. We go 26-3, and Notre Dame job opens, and we win it. The irony of this, when we beat UCLA on January 19, 1974, we became number one right after that game. Aaron beat Alabama in the Sugar Bowl on January 1st. He becomes number one in 1974. He had a quarterback named Tommy Clements who threw that key pass at the end of the game to get a first down so Notre Dame ran out the clock. Tommy Clements played the Canavan Catholic in Pittsburgh. He had a basketball scholarship to play for Dean Smith as a point guard in North Carolina. He came to play quarterback for error. But he's from Pittsburgh, Canavan Catholic. The guy for us was Dwight Clay, who was from Fifth Avenue in Pittsburgh. He hits the winning shot to beat UCLA. So what I'm saying is that January 1st, football becomes number one. January 19th, we become number one. The letter becomes a reality. That letter I wrote in 65 becomes a reality. And what was amazing, there was just like a big brother to me all the time. And when he died back in early, uh, end of August, early September, uh, I mean, actually, end of July, early August, on the 6th, I had to be a part of that memorial service. And he was just like a big brother to me, helping me as a young coach and getting involved and everything else and watching him coach and practice. But what was amazing how that whole insight to Eric Parsegan and what the influence was he had on me also as a coach, a young coach. I'm 29 when I get the Notre Dame job, so he was my big brother. And to have that happen to where I write that letter in 65, and then here it is in 1974, becomes a reality when we're both number one in that month of January. That's a special time, without a doubt. Now, making the transition from Fordham to Notre Dame, now it's like your dream job. Was there ever a part of you that was scared uh, that the, the stage was going to be too big? No, God, my, I got humbled early. My first year, we go 6-20. and 20. My good friend Bob Knight, my big brother by six months, he goes from West Point to IU. I go from Fordham to Notre Dame. We lose that game 94-29. We had nothing. We had walk-ons, whatever. Baseball players, a couple football players. So now the next week, we go out and play UCLA, and that's who I want to be. And I figure if I can be UCLA and build my program around that, then you, that's how you're going to become number one. Well, Wooden's up 40 with about six minutes to go, and he's got Bill Walton, Henry Bibby, Keith Wilkes, all these great players, and he's still pressing us. So I look down the bench. We're in Pauley Pavilion. I look down at his bench and, you know, past the scores table, and I yell two words, and it wasn't thank you, but you got one of the words right. <laughs> and then I look at Gary Cunningham, who's looking at me say that, and I say the same to the guy next to you. So after the game, wouldn't apologize and said, you know, we had a, our finals last week. We're working on our press. Our conference starts next week. And I looked at him and said, John, do anything you can do to beat me because somebody's going to kick you, you know, kick your butt. And I walked away from him. Well, 
a funnier story. Then we played Kentucky between Christmas and New Year's down in Freedom Hall in Louisville. And Adolph Ruff's coaching, it's like his last year. We end up losing by 18. But during the game, we're down 31. That night at the executive end, right there by Freedom Hall, I get a phone call from Adolph Ruff. And I figure he's just going to call and tell me, hang in there, kid, you're young. He's now Coach Phelps. You lost to Indiana by 65 and wouldn't beat you by 56. And tonight we had you down 31 and only beat you by 18. Coach Phelps, what do you think's wrong with my team? <laughs> Famous Adolph Rupp. That was his words of wisdom to me as he's retiring. Uh-huh. And I end up going 6-20 and 20 that year. But the next year, Dwight Clay and Gary Brokaw are sophomores, and they play. Shoemate was sick my first year, had a heart problem and a blood clot. But the second year, he's back. And then we get to the NIT championship that year. What was amazing back in those days, if you lost your conference, you went to the NIT. There were 16 teams. So, like, Southern Cal lost two games to UCLA. Bob Boyd had a great team. Paul Westfall was on that team, I think. They go to, they go to the NIT. Dean Smith's coach in North Carolina. Well, David Thompson and Tommy Burleson are NC State back then. Dean comes in second. He goes to the NIT. And then Denny Crum, he's at Louisville. And they lose to Memphis State. It was Memphis State back then. So they go to the NIT. We beat all three of those teams in the NIT, and we lose to Virginia Tech um, in the uh, championship game in overtime. And then the next year we come out, and that's the year, 73-74. Uh, we end up going 26-3. and We were number one there for a while until we went back to UCLA. Uh, we lost in the Sweet 16, but that was the big game, beating UCLA. But those guys in that team, that 73-74 team, because we're an independent, and we, there weren't that many at largest, maybe 32 teams going back then. So we played, we won road games at Ohio State, at Indiana, Kentucky and Louisville, Michigan State away, Kansas away, uh, Marquette home, um, West Virginia home, obviously UCLA home. But that's how our schedule was back then. We played a nation. Because we had to be, you know, strong enough to be uh, getting an at-large berth for the NCAA tournament. So what was the turning point, do you feel, from winning only six games in your first year to now in 1974, you get to the ranking of number one after beating UCLA? It was it was getting the players. It always is recruiting. Shoemate broke on Clyde. Gary broke was from New Jersey. He was a great scorer. And Shoemate was great in the paint. He and Walton used to go after it. And then Dice Martin was a point guard from Walton, New York. The key was that, that year, the year before recruiting, Adrian Danley was either going to go to Maryland, North Carolina State, or Minnesota. Morgan Woot was the coach at the Massa High School at the time. Adrian came out for a one-day visit. I told Shoemate, Brokaw, and Clay, this is the key guy for us. Get Adrian Danley. It will be solid, even though he only had six points in that UCLA game. He was the fifth guy on that floor. So once we got the guys in place, and what was interesting, we're down 11 with 322 to go. John Wooden wrote a book back then in 73, 74. They call me coach. So in the book, I'm reading it. There's a part where he says, never call timeout in the game. It's a sign of weakness. If you do everything in practice, there's no need to call timeout. Well, okay, we call timeout with about 3.22 to go. And the next thing you know, we come back out. We make some changes in our defense. We were pressing full court up, but Shoemate up next to Walton versus Brokaw. Put Brokaw deep because Tommy Curtis, the guard for Utah, just lobbed it over Brokaw's head. But Curtis didn't see that. We run a play to Shoemate's score. He steals the inbound pass to Walton, scores. Danley steals the pass, scores. Now they come down and miss a shot. We get 
broke on the left wing, he hits a jumper. We cut it to three. Bill Walton looks over to John Wooden on the bench. You can see this in the film. Nothing. And Walton's looking like, aren't you going to call timeout? Nothing. They go down, miss a shot. We come back down, go to broke on the left wing again against Keith Wilkes. He hits another one. We are now down one. And you can see in the game film, Bill Walton with both hands on his hip, signaling to Wooden for a timeout. Nothing. So now they come down, and we get the ball back. They miss a shot. We come down. We go to Brokaw again. But he sees Dwight Clay fade to the right quarter because Tommy Curtis, who's guarding Clay, comes over to double-team Brokaw. Well, Dwight Clay is a sophomore. Hit a buzzer shot against Marquette in Milwaukee to end their 81-game home winning streak. So Brokaw knew. He was the Iceman. So he finds him, throws him the ball. He shoots it, goes in with like 22 seconds or something to go in the game. We hold him scoreless, and we win the game. So at the press conference, I said to the media, I said, how many people have read the wood, uh, have uh, seen the movie Patton with Jordan C. Scott? And remember, he played Patton in that movie. And Eisenhower finally put him as a tank commander to go after Rummel. Patton versus Rummel. And Rummel was supposed to be the best tank commander in the world, and he's in an attack in North Africa, and Patton has him surrounded, and Rummel's retreating, and Patton jumps out of the foxhole holding his book and says, I read your book, you dumbass old B. I said, tell Wooden I read his book, the dumbass old B. And that's how we won that game. But that was a turning point of all of it, and from that moment on, man, we just became... You know, you go back and look at the teams we beat and how it was. And when Trapuca, Jackson, Woolwich, and those guys show up, the 78 Final Four team, with uh, that group of guys, and Bill Lambert, Bruce Flowers, Dave Batten, Duck Williams, Rich Branning, Billy Hanzik, they were like rock stars. See, back then we'd fly commercial, and we always wore suit and ties, and people would know us in the airport. There's Notre Dame. And they would not leave an arena after that game was over until they signed every autograph and took every picture because that's why people were there to see that. And that became part of the mystique. But they were like rock stars going through the 70s into the early 80s. Oh, I can imagine. And those were some big-time, powerful teams back then. Yeah. Now, but I have I have seen or have read that you'd mentioned that of all those teams that you've coached, that David Rivers was the best player that's that right. you ever coached. Yeah, Is that I'll true? I'll tell you what. He was a point guard and at uh, – uh, St. Anthony's in Jersey City. He played for Bob Hurley Sr. And Pete Gillen was one of my assistants. Actually, I had uh, my uh, uh, 13 assistants in 20 years. 12 became Division One head coaches, and the other one, Jeff Nix, is uh, assistant general manager of the uh, New York Knicks. I mean, of the Detroit Pistons. He was with the Knicks for a while, too, back when. But anyhow, David Rivers played for Bob Hurley Sr., at St. Anthony's in Jersey City. So when Pete Gillen, my assistant and I, we go visit, we visit in Hurley's house. And in Hurley's house, in the living room, these two little kids are sitting on the couch. Turns out to be Bobby Hurley and Danny Hurley, his sons <laughs> who became great players. But anyhow, um, Rivers as a point guard, he not only knew what he was doing with his four teammates, he knew when he dribbled what nine guys were doing. And you just put him in that creative situation to let him go. And I'll tell you, he would find one more dribble of defense cheap, and he'd throw a pass in a gap. And if you didn't have your hands up to catch it, you're going to have a bloody nose. And then when we first started scrimmaging, Tim Kempton had a bloody nose, 6'10", 250 inside. Rivers found him. And then Rivers just stares you down because you just took away an assist from him. <laughs> but that's why he was amazing and how he just – 
serious accident with Kenny Barlow. They were working for this barbecue uh, company, and he almost died, but he got through it, came back and played, and ended up playing, uh, was drafted by, the, um, I want to say, the Minnesota Timberwoods for two years. And then Musselman let him go after one, and then uh, Don Casey was coaching that. I think the Clippers put him there for that year. Then he played the old CBA for a couple of years until he ended up playing for uh, Istanbul, Turkey, in the European League for and won two European championships. And now he's taking foreign players and trying to get them to have a life after basketball. He's back in Italy doing stuff and doing stuff down in Florida. But he by far was an amazing guard. So speaking of the NBA, why did you never pursue uh, coaching in the NBA? You know, back when Sonny Werblin was coaching the Nick, I mean, was uh, running golf and Western, uh, he was, and a guy named, I uh, can't think of his name right now, but when I look at Sonny Werblin, he was running the guard back then, which were where the next Rangers played. And back in like 79, he got a hold of me. And Howard Cosell made me a star in New York, the famous Howard Cosell sports announcer for ABC. When I was coaching at Fordham, he like adopted me and just had me on his local shows or had me on this national show. So, But he and Sonny Werblin were great friends. And he said to Sonny, it's time to bring Digger Rue back to New York. Coach the next one, Red Holzman retires. So we had a couple of meetings. I never told anybody. And I said, Red, I don't want a salary. I want those blue seats up on top because they weren't sold out. That would be my salary for every home game. And he looked at his buddy in the office with him, and he said, no one digger. He'll paint the seats behind the bench blue and the seats upstairs red. (laughs) But after two years of that, um, I said, no, I just don't think so. I, I, I just think I'll stay at Notre Dame. So I turned it down. And, uh, oh, God, who did he hire? Oh, I guess TV now. And he's a good, Hubie Brown. I said, you guys need to hire Hubie Brown. He will get it done for you once Red's out of there. And he did. Hubie came in and did a great job with the Knicks. So that's what it was. But that was the only time. And I said, no, I'll stay at Notre Dame and finish at Notre Dame. The other thing was, after I was working for ESPN 20 years, back about, I forget, when Joey Meyer got let go with the Paul. I always thought that job's a sleeping giant. And if you could keep those kids in Chicago versus leaving Chicago, man, you could win a national championship at DePaul easy. And so when that even opened up, I think in the mid-'90s, the word was out for about a month. Bill Bradshaw was the AD, and he he and I met. I told him, I said, I I want the student section. You know how you got the pitchfork, and that's the Blue Demons pitchfork. And I got a shovel for Digger. I want a shovel and a pitch fork on a T-shirt, Xing. And I want that student section to be known as Digger's Demons. <laughs> I had that organized. I had the band, pep band, and dance team and all that stuff. And then finally I said, no, nah, I'm done with coaching. But, you know, DePaul to me is one of those sleeping giants. as a job keeping those kids home. You can win a national title. Yeah, so now why were you? did you feel that you were done with coaching then? Well, I just felt, you know, I think 20 years is a gig. You know, when you look at your gimmicks, I did 20 years there, 20 years at ESPN. The last 10 years at ESPN, we're doing college game day and travel just in the winter. is horrible, as you can imagine, up here to go anywhere in the winter. we got to be there Friday to tape, and then we got game day Saturday. 
and then all of a sudden Sunday I had to go back to Bristol, Connecticut to do Big Monday, then fly home Tuesday. Well, after about 10 years of doing that, I said, that's enough of this. So I did 20 years at ESPN, 20 years of what went on here coaching in Notre Dame. And just do other things in your life, as you can tell, with, with the things I'm doing. I, You know, I lecture on campus, um, keep active. The book's out with Father Hesburgh, so every football weekend I'm signing books. But I started on March 5th, the day after Father Hesburgh was buried back in 2015, to work with the Postal Service to get him a stamp. Sometimes it takes five or ten years to get that stamp, but I got it done in a year and a half. And we had that ceremony, and I was the MC or the coach, as I said, of that starting five to make it happen for Father Hesburgh, and now that forever stamps out. So there's always things going on, and I just think there's other parts of your life you move on. Leroy Neiman, the famous sports artist from, from New York, he, um, I was going to a White House function, and I'm on the bus, and... Um, Sitting, I see Leroy Neiman and his wife Janet. So I sit down and I talk. I said, I was on a rules committee, and Leroy is so boring, I'd sketch vineyards in France. He says, Why don't you paint? I said, Paint? He says, Yeah, you should become a painter. I said, Oh, no, Leroy, I don't think so. He said, No, nah, you should try. So I come home, and there's an artist in town named Charsaw. So I go down to her studio, and she had these, this vase of six yellow roses, and she, here, paint this. So I start painting, and it becomes the, the gloom of four faces. It was like in 91. And there's ugliness, happiness, sadness, and loneliness in this room, which is like a Van Gogh room with a single chair in there, and, and the windows cleaned up and everything else. But the sea of tranquility is going through it. But it was my mindset about coaching or leaving Notre Dame at that time period. So that was my first painting. So now I'm a Van Gogh Matisse freak, and I do a lot of mountains, different colors, and sunsets, and skies. And So I've been painting since 1990, I guess, 1990, 91. But, uh, yeah, I try to do two a month, and I paint over in France, and when I'm over there in early June, trying to get a couple done to say, well, you know, Van Gogh painted in Arles, and Matisse painted in Nice. And Degas, not D-E-G-A-S, the ballerina French painter, D-I-G-G-E-R, Degas paints in Saint-Jean-Caparat. <laughs> so, yeah, there's always stuff going on that you can do with your life if you live it. And I say that, I wrote a book called The Undertaker's Son, which is at the bookstore, too. And it was about my life's journey, really, uh, starting as a little kid in kindergarten, coming downstairs when the funeral home in Beacon, New York, you'd, our house was on a corner, and you'd go through to it the backyard and get to the funeral home, which was in the middle of the next block. But if there was a double header or two funerals back then, um, the, the wake would be in our living room. So I'm like five years old, I come downstairs, and I'm sitting on the steps watching this guy sleep in a suit in this box in our living room. So I go in the kitchen as I'm getting my Cheerios ready. I said, Mom, why is that guy sleeping? Why is he in bed? She says, Richard, we need to talk about something. And that was, that was the beginning of it for me, uh, being an undertaker. Son. But I never forget when I was like 12 and my two younger sisters, my dad would come home for dinner at night, and we're sitting there, and he looked at me, and he said, let me tell you kids something. All religions are our religions. All cultures are our cultures. All colors are skins are our colors of skins. Because when they lose a, a loved one, doesn't matter if it's a stillborn baby or a grandma, when they lose a loved one, back then it was two days of a wake and then the funeral. When they lose a loved one, we got to get them through this crisis, this whole grieving process. And my mother was a nurse, but she never practiced because she had three kids. But she 
she'd always go over to the funeral home every night during the wakes and nurse those families through that grieving process. So it was uh, it was an education about the game of life that uh, always stayed with me, and I I think it really put me in a place where. Yeah, I'm a prostate cancer survivor. I'm a, a bladder cancer survivor. I got AFib, take my Xarelto every day. But, you know, you move forward. You just don't let it beat you. And that's how I feel, and that's how I've been. So uh, in life's journey, uh, as I tell my players, there's a life after basketball. Well, as a basketball coach, there's a life after being a basketball coach. So I think that's why I've just uh, stayed on the sidelines and let everybody else go through it. I understand, but when you were on the sideline, you had this unbelievable knack of beating number one ranked teams. So how was that? Yeah, Richmond, we knocked off seven number one teams at Notre Dame in 20 years. Uh, Ralph Sampson in Virginia and Chicago. Uh, the 80-81 team, uh, that's when that was. That's Trapuca, Jackson, Woolridge, Paxson was on that team. Um, they beat Kentucky and Freedom Hall in Louisville in that December of eighty. Uh, when they were number one, and then they beat Ralph Sampson in Virginia and Chicago where they were number one, so they beat two number one teams. And then, of course, in 87, we beat Dean Smith in North Carolina when they were number one up here at Notre Dame. So, yeah, I, I look at those big games, and I always come up with um, what I thought would be the key factors in every game. To me, it's you know points off turnovers as well as second-chance points. That you control the boards, you control the game. And back when the three-point line wasn't a factor, when it did come in, I think that's what's running the game today, too many threes. And how many centers do you see anymore? You don't. But back when, the power game, as you're talking back in the 70s and early 80s, you know, we would attack your front line first two or three plays of the game. And if we got one of your big guys in foul trouble, uh, you know, it's – Six minutes into the game, he's on the bench with two fouls. Now we control the boards. Now we run. And that's, you know, today it's like, let's just shoot threes and figure out who's going to, well, why don't you just play horse and forget the game? You know, H-O-R-S-A, oh, you lose. But I think that's what's missing today is that line should go back another two feet, get more drive penetration, get more post play and get those points in the paint, which is always big for me. Now, the game has definitely changed, and other things that are changing as well is what's being discussed in terms of the NCAA transfer rules yeah. about you know allowing kids to transfer yeah. at any time. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think what happens is they should go to the baseball rule when it comes to you know the one-and-doneers. You know, three years or 21. Because the NBA coaches all loved us coaching these guys for four years back then. Uh, the transfer rule, you know, if a guy does his four years and gets his degree, all right, and if it was a redshirt year and he still has a year of eligibility, that does not bother me. Um, but when you're looking at the ills of the game, here's what it is. About four or five years ago now, there's a survey where 70% of NBA players and NFL players, 70%, five years after they retire, they're bankrupt. That's what's wrong. And so for these young kids that worry about their whole life in basketball, what's your life? How are you going to play after basketball the game of life after you've been playing the game of basketball? That's what's failing. And I say this, too, that if you sign and play for me for four years at Notre Dame, we, Notre Dame, as a university, with our legal office and financial office, we're in charge of your first contract. 
to make sure you sign for the right reasons, to make sure you have a budget to live on, and to make sure the rest of that money is being invested so that down the road you still have, you're not going to be bankrupt. And that's what I would do that first contract for the NFL and the NBA players. Okay. Now, what about what's your thoughts on actually paying student athletes while they're in college? No. Go to summer school. What we used to do, <laughs> you know, you're getting a free education. Student loans in this country for about 40 million people is about $40,000 a year. Student loans. So what? Do you have a student loan as an athlete? No. And what's it cost to go to Notre Dame? 70000 times four is $280,000. Okay? And maybe you get a Pell Grant if you qualify to give you X amount of time. But our guys used to work in the summer in between classes and summer school. It was legal. And that's what we used to do. Get out, get a job, see what the real world's about, and save your money. Not pay them. That's wrong. It's an interesting topic, and uh, I'm anxious to see how it will go. So did you ever have a point at Notre Dame that you thought it would be advantageous for Notre Dame to join a conference rather than be independent? Yeah, I I thought for us, uh, once the Big East got established the way it was, and they joined the Big East, I think the fact what was amazing was finally when they had the ACC, that's the best conference. Why? Because when you take a look at the Notre Dame clubs around the country with Notre Dame grads, from Florida to Maine, that whole East Coast is Notre Dame country, including Chicago and, you know, the Midwest going down to, say, St. Louis and to those Memphis and New Orleans. But, yeah, when you look at all the influence of Notre Dame, uh, it, it is right now I'm glad they're in the ACC because that gives them the best exposure for a lot of reasons outside of the sports we play. And I think that's where, um, for modern times, so to speak, and fundraising, so to speak, to survive as a university, uh, that's the biggest influence. What we used to do is play around the country, and that's who we were back then. I mean, when we played Utah and BYU home and home, we were the first Notre Dame team ever to play in the state of Utah, and we played at Utah the first time. Uh, people from all over that area came to see us because we're a Notre Dame team, and that's what just Notre Dame is. So, But today the exposure to the ACC gives them, I think, the best exposure ever. But when I look out there now and I see West Virginia and, you know, the Big 12, no. They need. They should be back east. I look at Maryland, the Big Ten, no. They should be back in the east. Um, you know, when I take a look at the old Big East, when you had Syracuse, Pitt, Notre Dame, and Louisville, all in that Big East, that was a that was the best conference over the ACC. And what's amazing, you take the ACC um, this past year, they had nine teams get in, nine get in, and only one got to the Sweet Sixteen, and that was North Carolina that went on to win it all. Why does that happen? I don't think they're physical enough. I think it's too much of a finesse conference. And the physical teams, like when Notre Dame played West Virginia, game starts out, they're down 10 nothing to start the game because West Virginia's just too physical. So as good as the ACC may be, this past year they only had one team get to the Sweet 16, eight were out of it early. Interesting to see. And I, I remember those uh, tough teams of Notre Dame, <laughs> for sure. Now, from a perspective of just college basketball who was the 
outside of Notre Dame, who was the best player that you ever coached against or ever saw while you Lenny were? Lenny Bryce. Lenny Bryce at Maryland was unbelievable. And Red Arback knew him. That's why he drafted him right away. Lenny Bryce, you can you run him off screens, you know, beat him up inside. He just found ways to score, and then you look at the box score in the, at Maryland, and you'd say, how do you get 27? But that's how he was. He was just a great scorer, and it's sad how he went out, you know, where cocaine killed him, drugs. That was sad. And that's why you go back and you look at Larry Bird, McHale, and Parrish were with the Celtics. They cried because they knew the torch was going to be passed to Lenny Bias to to keep the front line solid, that they would play less minutes and he'd go in and get maybe 15 minutes a game playing five minutes for each guy to save them for the playoffs. And that's what, you know, you look at how Redback when knew what to do and how to do it, Red Arback, um, and the Celtics and who they were and why. But that's why Larry Bird cried when Lane Bias died, because he knew he was going to be the next part of that front line to pass the torch when those guys started to retire. Yeah, that's right. I think Larry Bird's back was already starting to give him problems at that yeah. point. So that's yeah. a very accurate statement. All right, well, wrapping up here, Coach Phelps, because I know I have taken way too much of your time, but I could talk to you for hours, sir. I'm, I'm telling you, I could talk to you for hours. But just can you summarize the impact of sports in your life and the life lessons that you've learned by being involved in sports? Well, I never changed once uh, I ended up in coaching. Uh, being in the Ivy League at Penn for four years and then one year at Fordham and 20 years here. Uh, it was all about education and life after your sport. And what's amazing is, is I can look at the 20 years I coached, 56 players, all 56 got their degrees. And their life after basketball. Well, Stan Wilcox, 78 Final Four team as a freshman. He's now AD at Florida State. Um, I look at... Um, Scott Panic, he's president of Chicago Speedway. Um, I look at John Paxson, he's running the Bulls. So when I'm looking uh, around the country for, you know, all our guys, they have a life after basketball. And I think that's what's very important when you put yourself in a position to, you know, make life's journey. It's what you're doing after that sport is over. I look at Lafonso Ella, who's doing television here for ESPN, but he also uh, started the Jamba Juice after he played 12 years in the NBA, and he ends up going to um, uh, work for ESPN. But at the same time, he takes his money, invests, and buys the Jamba Juice, which he has sold. But I, I think this is when you look at people today and who they are. Uh, it's what's their life after basketball. So for me, my journey has been to put all this in place to where you have an education that means something, a degree that means something. And yet, after you're done with your sport, you take that degree and you go out and make a life for yourself to where you can win in the game of life and not be like that, what we're talking about with all those people that passed on when you got 75% of the... NFL and NBA players in a position to where they're bankrupt. That's not going to happen with the Notre Dame guys. 
I understand. And last thing, uh, Coach Phillips, just you've shared a lot and a lot of wisdom already, but is there any particular lasting words of wisdom that you would like to share, a phrase, quote, motto that has been important in your life? Well, you know, I used to do, and I used to teach our players, don't assume follow up and always have a backup. And if I'm flying to Connecticut, to do an ESPN game on ESPN. Um, what's funny is if I'm flying to Cincinnati, I can get there in the winter. But if I get to Cincinnati, I want to know where's the plane coming from to get me to Hartford? Well, it's coming from Raleigh, North Carolina. And there's a blizzard down there. That plane's not going to be there because it's a northeastern storm in Raleigh. So from that standpoint, I assumed... Now, if I check the weather channel the night before and I look and say, all right, what about from Detroit? I can get to Detroit, no no, no problems. What about, where's that plane coming from, Detroit, to get me to Hartford? Well, it's coming from Minneapolis. What's the weather like? 20 degrees. So don't assume follow-up, always have a backup. Well, good, I'm going to Detroit. There's my backup. What's funny is Brooks Boyer, I saw him one day up at Rigby, um, up at uh, Cellular Fair with a White Sox fight. That's my son-in-law, Jamie Moore, is pitching for Seattle. And he's walking down the hall. I said, Jamie. I mean, I said, hey, Brooks, don't assume follow-up. Always have a backup. He takes me into his office. He's coaching. I'm going to show you this. He pulls out this piece of paper in his desk. His first day in a job as an intern with the Bulls. Don't assume follow-up. Always have a backup. Uh, Jameer Jackson, one of my former players from Peoria, Illinois, he is now the CFO of Nelson Ratings out there in Stanford, Connecticut. And, you know, the same thing. When you look at him, and I've always said this, leadership, and I teach these guys this, give me somebody who has creativity, risk taker, the right street smarts, and knows how to be a survivor, that's leadership. We had a guy on a team by the name of Mike Mitchell, who was from San Bruno, California, Cappuccino High School. His freshman year, hitting 79, we lose to Michigan State in the regionals down in Indianapolis, Magic Johnson and company. Then all of a sudden, his sophomore year, he tears up his knee. His junior year, tears up the same knee on the other side. As a senior, I make him captain. He's in the backcourt with John Paxson. We play San Francisco here, not the year they were number one, but another year they're still like number seven. We beat them. He has a big game that night, like 15 points. He's the only guy in 20 years I gave a game ball to. And when I say leadership, I talk about creativity, risk taker, street smarts, and survivor. He graduates, goes on, and becomes Mike Mitchell, president of USA Beverage in L.A. That's what I look at as far as giving these guys the mentality to teach them and by experience give them that confidence to go up that they can win in the game of life after they're done with basketball. Now, as a former coach and somebody who looked up to Coach Phelps in my early career and wanted to be somebody successful like he was and could have talked to him for hours, and I can imagine all of you truly understand that 
He has so many stories, and I just was able to uncover a snippet of the stories that he has, and I'd love to be able to spend more time with him. But it was also just impactful from the standpoint that he was not so consumed with the wins and losses. While obviously that was very important, you can tell that it was preparing these men for life after basketball, as he'd mentioned. And that's one of the things that he focused on was making sure that they got their education, that they prepared them for life and be able to focus on life after basketball because the reality of the situation is that there is life after basketball. There's more than just playing basketball, coaching basketball, and that's one of the things that Coach Phelps focused on and still preaches to this day. And I just loved his words of wisdom of don't assume, follow up, and always have a backup plan. And that just allows people to be focused, prepared, and in the moment and ready for any situation. Well, that wraps up episode 37. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.